the leopard just sat there, froze, didn't move a muscle looking at us. Then suddenly it dropped down on all fours on its belly and it crept along the ditch and out of sight. And everyone just looked at each other in disbelief thinking, wow, was that real what we just saw? You say, well, I've seen this big cat, and some people just flatly refuse. They think that Britain's such a sweet little island, we shouldn't have predators that size. I heard this growl behind me, nothing like a dog's growl. And just like anything else in life, you're sat on your own there. I don't care who you are, how brave you are. Something like that will put the shivers up your spine. As she was walking before the cub came out, she flicked this tail. She literally flicked it in the air. And I simply could not believe what I was seeing. It was the most extraordinary feeling. It threw its head back, he said, and it made this sort of round. But when you actually realize that there are big cats living in Britain, it changes everything. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. Why are unofficial big cats being seen and could these cats even be naturalizing without us knowing? If you've had a big cat encounter in Britain and would like to discuss it, email me at rick at bigcatconversations.com. You can find other episodes on the website bigcatconversations.com. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 14 of Big Cat Conversations. Our guest in a minute is from Cumbria, and I hope you'll find it interesting to have a sculptor's perspective on this subject. He's had two different sightings to reflect on, and it influences his work as a sculptor now. So more on that in a moment, and first some brief announcements... If you're listening on schedule, I trust you're having a splendid festive break and looking forward to the new year. And I hope that the endless soggy autumn and winter we're experiencing here in Britain isn't getting you too down. It certainly seems to be influencing big cat reports. We've had far less than usual for this time of year. Normally there's a spike between, say, November and February, but that isn't happening this year. Maybe it's just this lousy wet weather that the jet stream is dolloping on us. And before we get started, a quick preview of the coming year with just a few snippets of what's in store. Later in the year, we've got episodes planned from Suffolk, from Pembrokeshire and even from Epping Forest on the north edge of London. We also hope to get back to Cumbria again before too long because there's a lot going on there. And we've got another episode planned on North East England, and that's with an ex-police officer whose work included taking Big Cat reports. So we'll get his thoughts and reflections on it all. We'll also be hearing from some farmers in different parts of Britain, and it's always going to be important to get the views from farmers and landowners within these podcast episodes. And I can see from the reviews on iTunes that we've been asked to do an episode on East Sussex, so we're looking into that, I promise, and we'll hopefully get to East and West Sussex during 2020. I've heard of reports in and around Ashdown Forest, for example, and that's where Winnie the Pooh was written, of course, with that Heathland environment which would suit big cats. 
Anyway, we're on the case for East Sussex, and there'll be lots more besides, and we hope to start with our podcast pub evenings in 2020. Any suggestions for pubs that could host us would be welcome. So keep the ideas coming. Email me at rick at bigcatconversations.com. Okay, that's enough background stuff for now. Let's get down to it for this episode. Our guest is from Cumbria, and he is Sean Williamson. He's a well-known sculptor in that part of the world, and we're going to, in fact, be talking about some of his work because he has done some big cat sculptures, including a panther sculpture, which we'll hear all about within the interview. And, Sean, thank you very much for coming on Big Cat Conversations. Welcome, and we look forward to hearing what you've got to say. I gather your sighting was a few years ago, 2012, was it, in the Thirlmere area? Yes, it was on the backside of Thirlmere uh, when that road was open and I often travelled that road back home basically which was from Troutbeck to Cockermouth where I was living at the time. I'd actually stopped because there was an explosion of feathers and a peregrine falcon had actually nailed uh, some kind of a pigeon and the pigeon had gone right in front of the car and the peregrine still holding the bird had stopped in the middle of the road basically clutching this pigeon whilst i was ground to a halt in the car and then it just zoomed off as soon as it saw made eye contact with me and curiously it seemed to be an evening of lots of different animal things happening including an indian file of deer which stopped which i'd seen once i got out of the car actually to pick the dead pigeon up to put it on the wall and i thought what's going on here and they made eye contact with me and then something spooked them not me incidentally it was almost as if they'd got the scent of something it was just without being too melodramatic it was just seemed to be all the right ingredients for one of those things to have happened one of those events to have happened and basically what i saw was a flash of eyes i mean i would have immediately said this was a panther it contrasted against the brown ferns at the time And this thing was moving quite rapidly through the undergrowth and really spooked the deers, obviously, that the lead deer in front basically bolted. And this, to all intents and purposes, a panther, I can't think of it, what else it could have been, you know, it was a fair size, uh, was in and out of the ferns themselves And that was it. You know, I mean, it wasn't like it stood there and I got a great, magnificent view of it. But I did see it emerging in and out of the ferns. The deer had gone and that was it. And kind of a flash of eyes when there was kind of a a light from the the moon or not the moon, but the, the remnants of the sun, I guess, seemed to intensify its stare. I saw its tail and... There was a bit of a commotion and then it was gone. And that was how it happened. What do you reckon it was doing? Was it there trying to stalk and ambush them, do you think? And you saw them because they sensed it? Or was it coincidence or are you not sure? I think it was there because it's a quiet area where there's deer trails or tracks. I think it was there purposely. The only thing that occurred outside of the normal realm of events on that evening 
was this peregrine falcon nailing the pigeon. Had that not have happened, I'd have probably just carried on driving. It was just all these things happening at once. And it was the reaction of the deer. I mean, I'm quite often in the north of Scotland and, you know, I'm not an animal wildlife expert or anything, but there was something peculiar going on. And it definitely could not have been a black alsatian or something like that. It was definitely something moving a lot more subtly than that. So for me, seeing the reaction of the deer, putting two and two together and seeing what I considered to be a big cat, then to me it made perfect sense. It was a very, very isolated area, but perfect for deer. So this was a predator on business and the deer recognised that as well? Yes. I don't see it such a a vast abnormality. I mean, my father, who was a sea captain, but not at the time, who lived in Morecambe with my mother, was backwards and forwards pre-Rabies Act. And I know because he brought animals back to the house and left them with my mother and then went back to sea. It was always left to my mother to (laughs) rehome them. Yes. You know, we had very immature baboon. We had ocelots. Ocelots were a big thing that he brought back Yeah, when he was in from South America and stuff. And it, this was common. Yes. I mean, and then people just used to let them go. Yes, or, or sell them. They were brought back as currency sometimes to earn a bit of extra. Yes. I remember in Toronto seeing a guy with a Canada when I was at college over there, a guy with a panther on a leash. It was elderly, overweight panther, mm. and he had it on a leash. People had these felines as, as pets, as status symbols. Yes, yes. Yeah. Not, and not just in Britain. Absolutely, mm. all over. And yeah. Rabies Act came in, made it all illegal. There was a few cases of people succumbing to rabies, I think. And mm. suddenly it was not the thing to have in your house. <laughs> sure. The view you got, could you mention the scale and the length of the tail and anything else, that, any other characteristics that stood out? Obviously, the length of tail and, you know, it wasn't just what you would have expected to be, you know, the quiet cat stalking through the undergrowth. This was making a bit of a rumpus and it was using its strength, I think, to pull itself through the undergrowth, which had probably been waiting for those deer. And quite often people find carcasses of sheep or roe deer or this seemed like it had set up its prey scenario, you know. Yeah, ready for an ambush if it could. What scale compared to a German Shepherd or a Labrador dog would you say this was? It's hard to judge, but its gait, the way it was moving, was different from a German Shepherd because it, it was kind of hunkered low with its head being carried low. Every so often I'd get like a glimpse of the head and I could see the tail and then I'd see something else and then it would disappear. And then just like when you see a roe deer evaporate into nothing, this did the same thing. It just disappeared into the undergrowth. And that's what it does. And actually the same with the deer. They bolted. You know, I'm looking to see if they're going to towards the top of the hill or something like that, but they're just gone. Yeah. In terms of body mass, would it have been similar to a German shepherd-sized dog? Well, it was bigger. It was lower, but more substantial. Yeah, fair enough. What was the colour? Black, jet black, dark, or what? It wasn't what you would have expected, like the jet black panther kind of a deal. It was almost like it seemed to be like a slate grey or something. Gosh. Like someone it had adapted 
you know, it's camouflage system to suit another environment or something. It also seemed to have more more fur, you know? Yeah. Oh, more hair. Interesting. What time of year was it? Was it cold winter time? Because, I mean, it's possible that some could develop a sort of winter coat. I think it was late autumn. It was around that time. I've got to avoid what we call confirmation bias and jump to the known main candidate species from what you're saying. But have you considered whether it could have been a cougar, a mountain lion, puma concolor, rather than a black leopard, black panther type animal? So you can get very grey. There's normally a fair bit of brown in them, but they've got a grey tinge to them, the pumas, the mountain lions. It could have been, but especially in terms of size but i do because i've studied the feline shape through my interest via sculpture yeah it definitely seemed to be more panther like and i would have been able to have picked out the color i think more so had it been a cougar mm. than trying to pick up a contrast between the the browner ferns and whatever it was that was moving through them you yeah. know either whether it would be a panther jaguar style animal or or something else but i can't think of whatever else it could have been you know yes very interesting that's um it's rare to have that kind of color i mean so yours was a deep slate gray yeah you know not what i would have thought as the black panther with you know midnight moon qualities and all the rest of it it was definitely not completely that it was dark but i would say we're talking dark gray somehow very interesting yeah yeah and sean you've had another encounter could you briefly tell us about that that was actually up near workington and i can't say that that was a panther that was some other type i got it down as a puma in my own mind you know yeah bearing in mind its color and it seemed to have kind of it was like a like an oversized cat with the kind of pointy ears you know like the lynx type ears mm-hmm. somehow not that i could identify it completely as that it was just a lot lot bigger than a, a standard cat was well made and actually sculptural to look at i mean that huh. was yeah, that's the thing that I'm interested in when I see felines is the the dynamic muscular frame and how they you know how they've adapted as a as a predator you know. Yes. So this one was a sandy grey colour, was it? Yes, it was. Yeah, it was a sandy grey colour with seemed to get a flash of white every now and again, and that just disappeared. And quite often. It's not just about the sighting, actually, either. It's about having a sense of being watched by something because I think these escapees or whatever's happened to them, I think they're ultra canny in being able to outwit humans. And if you can understand that they know humans or have known them in some type of environment, then it's like know the enemy and <laughs> yes yeah when they're out and stuff i think that they've got you know six seven cents to keep away from the dangers of us you know yes I mean, which they do in their yeah. native countries as well of course yeah I, you know in their native environments they develop all these skills in survival yeah. aspect to their existence so that Puma-like one that you saw near Workington. What was it doing? What was the behaviour and what were the circumstances? It was by the river. Again, it was in the undergrowth and it was similar to the panther, 
but moving in a different way. It was actually moving uphill. And you say Puma, you know, thinking back on it, it could easily have been a Lynx, but it actually seemed to be more like a cross between a Puma and a Lynx. I didn't see the tail, which would be a good way to identify it, I think, more thoroughly. Although I'm not trying to be an expert on this in any way, shape or form. I'm just interested. I tend to sometimes be in an isolated situations. I also have a kind of a sense for picking up disturbances or that feeling that perhaps there's something there or you're being watched. And, you know, I don't think I'm alone with that. Yeah. And of course, it may or may not have had a tail. It may have had a tail, but you didn't see it. Or it may not have had much of a tail. And therefore, it was a lynx because they don't have much of a tail to see anyway. No, no, they don't. And they also, they've got a different hunting style. So they have developed differently to a puma, for instance. Yeah, they're not so low sprung. They're not so coiled. And yeah, they're more gracile, a bit more upright often. Yeah, absolutely. And they've got like a, they've got quite long limbs, actually. I believe that, you know, some famous boxers, Muhammad Ali used to imitate the striking technique of a lynx. Really? Yes, yes, he used to copy animal anatomical movement, you know. Wow. Okay, I must look that up. The scale of that one, the scale of that second one, what would you say, again, relating to a dog, what kind of scale was it? It was kind of Labrador, but different, more angular. You know, Labradors are a bit rotund and stuff, but it, it was similar to that, yeah. That particular area that I'm talking about, near Workington and between Cockermouth and Workington, actually, mm-hmm. A place called Camerton. Okay. It's been notorious for sightings of different, particularly felines, you know? Yeah, yeah. Could we get onto your sculptures and heavy stone uh, sculptures is your speciality, isn't it, Sean? And what, what... Yeah, I do. I do large. I did the big nine ton Herdwick Ram at Cockermouth, which was community training program, actually. And I became interested in this idea of you know, the mystique of the Cumbrian panther. I've done loads of commissions over the I think 30 public commissions in total yeah. major commissions in this country mainly in stone mm. and I do smaller works uh, particularly animals animal heads that type of thing and I was interested in the mystique of the Cumbrian panther because I also thought it would make a good book as well mm. in the same way the book that I wrote Mauler on the Tasmanian wolf, which mm. had escaped from a menagerie in, it was the late 1800s. But I, I carved the first panther head based on the Thermia sighting. And then I did a, another couple of panther heads in Cumbria, Saltawath limestone, which is very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I used ancient techniques to carve the stone. So it was crushing it basically with meat tenderizing style tungsten carbide tip hammers to get the shape gosh um yeah and of course i was interested in the jaguar cult in south america i spent six months uh, some time ago in chile and i was in peru so you know all these things feed inspiration how long does it take to do a panther's head in that material the panther's heads that i've done to date, they're all obviously life-size, and the, the, I think the first one was one of the best, actually. I could do a complete head in about two to three weeks, and that's polished, you know? Yes, uh, yes. And the, the Cumbrian salt-to-wath limestone, of course, is 
very similar to it's kind of a, a dark brown rather than a black. It's a great colour to work with for the panther. Yes. We'll put some photos of some of those pieces of work with your permission on the website so people can click on this episode and see them on the website if that's okay i think you have got photos of them all haven't you yeah please do yeah of yeah. course anything we can do to help yeah what kind of reaction do they prompt from people the cat and panther heads well i'd like to think that it was something that made people think but it's kind of outside the normal realms of existence and i lived up at the north of scotland in a lighthouse accommodation for six months over one winter mm-hmm. And the old guy that was there before me, he was out with his uh, with his gun looking for a big cat that had been attacking not his sheep, but his friend's sheep next to the lighthouse accommodation. It was actually a wick, in actual fact. Right, okay. I talked to in, a lot of interesting people, but mainly people that have got their feet on the ground and stuff. And these things are, are occurring around us all the time, but because we live in a kind of a boxed existence to some extent, the mystique eludes us to some extent, and I'd like to think that I'm a person that's picking up some of these other things that are occurring, you know. Yeah, yeah. In terms of working in that material, that sort of heavy stone, do you have to make compromises to get the form of the feline, or do you think it works well for the muscularity of them? No, it works well. The polished uh, effect, refining, I mean, there's no actually no greater sculpture than the real thing. If you look at the shape of a panther head, you realise how magnificent it is with its the muscular strength of its jaws, the way its head is dynamically positioned, the power of the, the shorter muzzle and the penetrating gaze, the way the ears are held. Yes. All these things that you notice. And I think probably most people have seen that YouTube now of... Um, I think it's a black leopard or a jaguar, I can't remember. It's like a leopard, but it seems to be more enhanced. And it actually captures and kills an alligator that's, you know, another half as big as itself. Yeah, so the jaguars do that in South America. Yeah, Cayman. Yeah, they, they yeah Cayman. Yeah, Cayman. Pulled it out of, the, out of the river. Yeah. But they reckon a leopard, pound for pound, is a lot stronger than a lion for instance mm-hmm. yeah 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 um what about if you have to do a full body for example i saw recently you did a lion so if you're doing the full body of an animal how do you do its tail in the sculpture form do you have to sort of tuck it in rather than have it isolated and vulnerable yeah well i i mean i i did a few ornamental large-scale lions they were not really what i would call sculpture more carving you yeah. know like for the fronts of people baronial mansions and stuff like that but yeah so very stylized yeah you couldn't have a an outstretched tail or something like that you know you would wrap the tail around the animal or around its fin because it would be vulnerable in stone as the ancient masters did you know yes one of the best examples of a feline that was adapted for heraldic courses was done by the italian sculptor donatello and that's been the yardstick for that type of work ever since you know and donatello was a magnificent sculptor michelangelo cellini those are some of my favorite masters in actual fact yeah you can't do a cat's whiskers really i suppose you could do the effect could you do a kind of muzzly effect in that area to just have to say that's a compromise you have to just drop 
you could do that you know i'm sure there's a contemporary way to do that but you know there are kind of pinprick holes a bit bigger than that actually where the whiskers protrude from so that's a further indication also say for instance if you wanted to do eyelashes on a human portraiture yeah you would very very gently nick the eyelids itself to give it the impression so it's about giving impression to form or material and there's ways to do it that would convey the illusion you know yeah Interesting. Okay, could we get on to this book? So there's a, you've done a story based on a real-life event of a thylacine in Cumbria. In fact, we spoke about the thylacine very briefly in the Australian edition with Simon Townsend a few episodes ago, So, and I didn't think we'd be coming back to mention the thylacine again. But, yeah, so tell me about this. The book Mauler I wrote in 2005, and, again, that was picked up. It was called The Legend of the Girt Dog, and it's based off actual events. There's newspaper articles, whatever it was, some say it was a mastiff cross greyhound, had slain 400 head of sheep, and it had attacked hunting dogs, and it had also attacked a, a huntsman at one point in time. And it became legend, this thing, or this event. They eventually nailed it in one of the rivers, I think, up near Eaglesfield, near Cockermouth. But the carcass had been kept for a long time in Keswick Museum, which is an ancient 19th century museum that not many people know about, but it's an incredible museum. And it had gone missing, the carcass itself. So I don't know what happened. Some people had said that it had been stolen. Nobody really knows. But there are actual incidents of thylacine or... Tasmanian wolf, which is what I think it was, uh, escaping from menageries, you know. And the killing patterns of this particular animal was exactly the same as a Tasmanian wolf, which is to eat the liver and take as much blood as possible to get as much energy value as quick as possible. And that's what had been happening to the sheep as well. So the animals had been dispatched, it seemed to be quickly from what I'd read in newspaper articles, the liver taken and almost the blood drained. Yes, I've heard about the Gert dog. I didn't realise this was the same thing. Yeah, and we'll put a link. So that's available from people can order that on Amazon, can they? And if so, we'll put a link to that on the website for this episode. Yeah, well, the the writing was a kind of a hobby for me. I always wanted to do that first, really. And when I was at sea myself, I used to write for something to do. And it was actually putting flesh on that kind of boyish intent later on in life. And (laughs) it is on Amazon. And it was also the full article was featured in 14 times and actually the Reader's Digest also. There was a movie made... I was in touch with a couple of people trying to pitch Mauler when I knew that there was some intent to make a a film about the hunting of the last Tasmanian wolves, which sickened me, you know. I mean, uh, what happened, the extinction in Tasmania of this incredible marsupial was sickening and trying to come to terms with what the inhumanity of mankind was the reason that I wrote Mauler. It had a a very good review from magnificent writer Andrew Sinclair of the Knights Templar writer, and he also directed under Milt Wood. Andrew died recently, the end of May this year, aged 85, but he gave it a cracking review. And, of course, he was, in his heyday, was the reviewer for Penguin. 
Oh, wow. Well done. Two things then about the thylacine from what you've just said. Firstly, it may not be extinct, of course. Um, that's what some people reckon. In fact, in our Australian edition, Simon Townsend drops a little hint, actually, which is worth listening to because he gets information from people who track mammals in Australia. So that was interesting. Um, the film you mentioned, I've forgotten its name now, but there is a very interesting, half-decent Australian film about the tracking, um, hunting of the last thylacine. And... I don't want to do a plot spoiler, but it, it has got a very interesting twist to it. I'll find it, remember what it's called, and put a link to that on the episode for this one on our website as well. Is that the film you're talking about? It is, yeah. Yeah, it is. I did see a video of the film, and it was pretty good in actual fact. But, you know, the reason that uh, the Tasmanian wolf is called Mauler is because it's that's its generic name, because it's between a dog and a wolf. But the crushing power of its teeth or its jaws exceed both the dog and the wolf. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, very lithe body, hasn't it? It's not heavily built like a wolf. No, it's not as big, but its its head's very, very powerful. Its jaws particularly, which can distend almost like a snake. And there's quite okay. a few pictures wow. of it with this distended jaw. That, and the teeth are enormous. And it was almost like a wolverine in, in as much as it wasn't as fast as a wolf or a dog, but it was persistent and lolloped, apparently, and was relentless in pursuit of its prey. Yeah, good stamina. Yeah, yeah, very good stamina. And, and I think that the Brits that had gone over to Australia had taken hunting dogs to try and subdue it, and quite often those <laughs> dogs came unstuck. Okay, our words of the week for this episode are general impression of size and shape, or jizz, the traditional form of the word which started in military terms for gauging what a shape in the distance might be. And of course, general impression of size and shape is commonly used by bird watchers when they're looking at a dot in the sky and wondering whether it's a sea eagle or an eagle or a buzzard or whatever in the distance and they quickly as an experienced observer of these creatures use the jizz to work out what it is before them that of course can relate to mammals such as cats and big cats and distinguishing cats and dogs and in fact i'm going to put a clip from the media this past year from april 2019 of what I think is one of the best bits of footage of a black panther, black leopard type animal, maybe, in the British countryside that's being filmed. It's only a glimpse, it's only a snippet, but I think quickly assessing the jizz of that animal helps you. It needs scaling, of course, like any footage does. It would be very difficult to scale because of the angle and the location and actually getting a match on that precise location. But I think the person who took that footage did very well. He seemed to creep up on it as it was observing deer and managed to get out his mobile phone in time and answer the critics who say, oh, people never get their mobile phones out for these animals. This guy did. If he ever listens to the podcast and would like to come on the show, it would be great to ask him all about that encounter. So I'll put that under episode 14 on the references and links part of the Big Cat Conversations website. That was filmed in the Forest of Dean and it was in the Gloucestershire media in April 2019. So do look out for that. 
I presume also general impression of size and shape is relevant to sculptors like Sean, who we're speaking to at the moment, because as he's saying, they often just form an impression of the animal or object they're carving and casting for their sculpture work. So there's our word of the week, general impression of size and shape. We'd better get on to the common question for everybody. And again, it's however you respond is fine for all of us. And it's how you feel about big cats living in the wild in Britain in general. I think it's, I I like the idea, you know, and we can't have it all our own way in this world. We can't domesticate everything. I mean, quite often what I think has been happening is that they've, probably got a very strong scent for their own kind. And, you know, there's probably that many incidents of cats being released that there may be small communities of feline predators in existence, but living in remote areas and operating at night. They're not going to be an easy thing to catch, I think, even with packs of dogs or whatever. But I, I like the mystique of it and... There's something anti-civilization about it that I'm I'm enthralled by, you know. But okay, what about the situation where you knew this guy who was bothered by some sheep kills? How do you feel if that happens? It's not for me to advise the farming community can deal with those problems themselves. I think, and they're not necessarily going to solve them. But if I had certainly, if I had a flock of sheep and they were being taken by something that I wasn't quite certain about they'll know what they'll know that it's not a fox you know there's been quite a few farmers not just here some in scotland as well that i've known that have come across anomalous deaths of flock of sheep and not dogs you know they've been the carcasses have been treated or dealt with in another way by whatever predators got them you know and taken to places as well the practicalities of, of living with those occurrences, if you're a farmer, you know, with livestock, obviously you're going to try to arrange to sort the problem out. But they're very elusive, these animals. And I know that the police in the south, Cornwall, I think, other areas where these occurrences have, have happened, they've not had any success. Of, well, nobody has, seems to have that much success. I think you're right. I think in terms of pursuing them, it is extremely difficult because they're stealthy and we don't have um, hounds, trained hounds like they would do for pumas in America, of course. And it's and the circumstances, that just the logistics of using hounds to pursue a big cat in the British landscape would be very difficult across roads and fencing and different land tenure. I think so, yeah. And these predators have developed strategies to suit their environment in which they live. They develop in terms of survivalistic mechanisms, you know. Yes. Yeah. Very resourceful. Yeah. Yeah. Sean, this has all been terrific stuff. And thank you for covering, you know, all the key points. Is there anything else that you'd like to say or things you feel we haven't touched on that you'd like to mention? I've kind of exhausted my uh, armory of information, but (laughs) I am a fan of 14 times, for instance. And I do like to see or exist with a bit of supernatural occurrence around me in nature and not you know, not think that we've got everything that's so pinned down and in the box that our lives become mundane. So it is an area that I'm obviously fascinated in, but it's backed up, I think, by quite a lot of hard evidence. And 
that's the thing. You know, there's a, obviously I've got this romantic side to my personality, but I, you know, I'm also listening to people that have got the hard practical reality of, of seeing what's occurred in, in nature and, and also knowing about a lot of stuff that's been covered up. Yeah. How would you respond to somebody, maybe a really sort of stubborn sceptic, saying, ah, Mr Williamson, you've just admitted that you're interested in unorthodox, unusual, beyond normal realm of things, and so you're biased. You've actually invented the creature that you yearn to see, so we can't say that your sightings are objective. How do you respond to that kind of criticism or that kind of observation? I would say, well, you know, you're an empiricist, you have a linear approach to these to these matters. And as we know now, with developments in the world, you know, in a multidimensional way, the linear thinkers are being overturned. And that's exactly <laughs> what I would say to them. I would say, let's have a look at some other ways of working these problems out. Because so far, it's the believers that are, in my mind, winning because in actual fact, they also sway the public as well. Presumably, Sean, you would also say that you do your utmost to be objective in your observations and analysis. Well, absolutely. You know, especially when I'm researching something as well. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm reading formulating opinions based off events and, and real evidence and testimonies in that way. You know, it's like getting a scientist to examine an anomalous event somewhere. He's going to have a certain approach in dealing with that problem. It's more interesting to work with people that have got a lateral approach to the solution. And somewhere between both approaches, perhaps we've got the truth. Yeah, Joe, we've all got our own baggage, haven't we? But it can help us at times in, in our own analysis. Do you yearn to see another one, Sean? A lot of witnesses do. Or have you sort of comforted in the fact you've had two, you've communed with the big cat twice? Yeah, well, the first event was the main thing. But when I was in South America, I did see the indigenous cougar a few times over there in in the south of Chile, Chiloe, it's called. Yeah, where they call them, and they they call them puma, don't they? As if it's spelt P-O-O-M-A. Yes, and... There had been occurrences. My girlfriend had seen one knocked over on the road and killed, which upset her greatly. But I saw some in the wilderness, and it wasn't like the film sighting, but it did make the hairs on the back of my neck rise up, you know. And you're lucky to see them in the wild there, to be honest. I know they say the numbers are increasing a bit. That was on the BBC Attenborough documentary just about a month ago when they were filming them hunting Wanakos. And some of the filmmakers there said, we did this a few years ago and it was hard work to find any at all. Yeah. It just shows you they can be very elusive in the creatures to see in their native countries, even if you go into areas where sightings are known of. When I was in Santiago, in the mountain ranges above Santiago, condors are quite common there. You find condor feathers. But to people in, say, in this country, it's perhaps an unusual event. It just depends. There's a chance element. It's where you are at the right time. And these things are, are, are out there. But, you know, there's no guarantee that you're going to see anything at all. Of course. You could actually condition yourself never to see anything. Because scientists, you know, you believe the linear thinkers. Yeah. In fact, there's a book, How to Walk a Puma, 
and it starts off with this guy actually uh, arriving in one South American country, can't remember where, and he says that he wants to see a puma and in the wild, and they say, seeing a puma in the wild, you've got more chance of getting pregnant from a llama. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's how lucky you were, Sean. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, if you're open to these things, I had some incredible experiences with particularly hawks, and I can send you the pictures, actually, whereby this particular type of opportunist hawk would follow you around and wow. just appear. And then suddenly, this small island I was staying on, a probably completely different pair of the same type of hawk nested and before I'd finished, I was feeding them ham off a stick. How about yeah. that? I think they know. You'd habituated them. Yeah, yeah, something like that. But they You'd have habituated them, yeah. They have a sixth sense, I think. and Yes, and they read your vibes and know you're not in a threatening mode or position. Well, yeah, and I spe- if you read Rupert Sheldrake, you know, the sense of being stared at, his book you know, all this stuff seems to come together. But like, for instance, a crow can gauge from its aerial vantage point whether a human being is going to be dangerous or not, or if he's carrying uh, something that's dangerous like a shotgun, and it will stay out of range, you know. But if it's a stick or a a walking stick or something, it won't. It, It will come closer. Yeah, you're reminding me now of a filmmaker who said he was making a documentary on wild boar and he'd gone to a place in France and he was with two hunters and this male wild boar um, got freaked out and turned on them and three of them were there holding machines in their hand. He had the camera, big contraption, and the others had firearms and the boar was only interested in attacking those two, realising they were a threat. And he said somehow it could distinguish the machine that I was carrying was not going to do it potentially harm. Yeah, exactly. And that's a great way of exemplification of, of the point that I just made. We do not completely understand the animal kingdom, but we are beginning to know more about it and stuff. And I mean, the message in Mauler was, let's not make extinct all these magnificent creatures on the earth because they contribute to our sense of mystique the sense of what we're about as human beings and it's not going to be good for mankind to kill everything it possibly can you know yes especially needlessly yeah needlessly and i know that there's uh multi-dimensional arguments and stuff like that but there's no better thing than to have a kind of a relationship to some extent with an animal in terms of for instance uh, a guy that goes out with a hawk or a falcon working with animals in in all the sense that we've managed to adapt them to work with man as well is a great thing. Yes, takes you to a higher level. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Uh, Sean, I'm going to say this, but in case we don't get this guest on the the show in the future, but um, and I don't know if I've mentioned, but there is another witness who is a sculptor, and his sighting was in Shropshire a few years ago, and his sighting was while he was finishing off his sculpture in a sculpture park setting so it was outside he was doing it in situ it was going to end up where he was creating it and I think it was late in the day it was a typical sort of dusk situation where the panther turns up in the twilight and he said he he was able to watch it because he just was there behind his large sculpture so he just stuck behind it and had a peek over the top of it and watched this panther walk right past him for 20 seconds or so at a really good 
good close-up view. So I'm saying that in case we don't get the gentleman on. But um, fabulous, yeah. No, that's you know, there's many people had the same the same thing happen. I'm just starting to get a little bit uh, frazzled there with all this information we've uh, pumped out today it's been been a pleasure talking to you yes thank you very much for coming on big cat conversations and we've gone much wider and deeper than i think we intended but i think it's all been grist to the mill so really grateful to you sean for for coming on and being one of our guests that's really smashing yes and uh, keep me posted on uh, all these future developments yeah, sure. And we'll put all those things we mentioned on the website, so the film and your book and pictures of your sculptures. All the best with your future work, Sean. Yeah, thank you very much, Rick, and keep up the good work. OK, before we close, there are three points to make in order to clarify some issues from my interview with Sean. First, I did check afterwards that he did mean a peregrine falcon at the outset of his interview, rather than a sparrowhawk. And indeed it was a peregrine that he saw taking out the pigeon before his panther sighting. Second, the Australian film that we discussed about the thylacine. I said I'd look it up, it's called The Hunter, and we put a link under episode 14 on the website, so you can get an idea of the vibes of that film from the trailer through that link. And third, I mentioned a book called How to Walk a Puma in the latter part of the interview, and that book is by Peter Allison. I said that he mentioned he arrived in South America saying he was hoping to see a puma in the wild, but in fact it was a jaguar. I've checked in the book, it was a jaguar, not a puma, even though he was quickly told he had no chance of seeing a jaguar, but I think that's equally the case for pumas. They would be very elusive and difficult to see as well. Finally, a brief mention of our next episode, Stand By for the Panther of Southern Spain, which I mentioned a few episodes back that we were going to talk about. So we're going to hear about what happened when a black panther was released on a British guy's land in southern Spain. We'll learn how different the behaviour can be to the seemingly wild and naturalising cats here in Britain. We'll hear all about that in two weeks' time. And this is our last episode of 2019. For those of you who listen on schedule, it's time to wish you all a happy new year and best of luck, everyone, for 2020. So thanks very much for listening to Big Cat Conversations. Bye for now and take care.